This is episode 16 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast, continuing with the 2005 Annual Enrichment Conference, Together in His Presence, a Covenant Community Experience, Hope Has an Identity. Session 2 was the business meeting. This is session 3 with Luke Hendricks. As I have already mentioned to you, one of the profound changes in my life has been to become a grandfather. And um, Bill Clem, a close friend of mine, just preceded me in that honor as uh, his son and daughter-in-law gave birth to a, a granddaughter about two weeks ahead of Matthew and Natalie. And, um, you know, I called Bill afterwards and, and uh, said, what was it like? What was the experience like? He he was down in the office, in the main office, working on some things at CB Northwest when the call came that uh, uh, Jenna was going into labor, and it's the big rush and the excitement, and Bill uh, trying to decide how to time that, his departure from the office to get there in enough time and all that, and, and, he, and he did a great job and got there and the whole deal, and, but after it was done and Abigail was born, I called him, and I said, so, so what's it like? And he said... Um, he said, you know, I didn't anticipate this. He goes, I didn't anticipate uh, holding that little girl and feeling the weight and the responsibility for another generation. Thought maybe it was done. Like, you know, I had raised my kids and now I could pass that off. But now, as a grandfather, he said, I, I felt the same thing. And I said, well, do you have any words of wisdom for me? You know, as I come into this situation. And he said, well... You know, Natalie's going to go into labor and all that stuff, and there's people and there's timing issues. And he said, um, I'm just praying that you're not going to be a jerk. <laughs> and, you know, I thought about that. And thought, wow, that's really profound. Not going to be a jerk. And, and didn't know, but until I got down there, right? Until I got down there. And then I went to another friend that was in Southern California, and I said, just pray for me that I wouldn't be a jerk. Because... You know, it's an intense time for mothers and grandmothers and, and there are expectations and I don't know any of them and I'm just, yeah, so anyway, um, it's been an interesting time for me, but as I reflect on it, uh, this morning I have, I would consider to be a difficult job, a difficult job because uh, I want to challenge you with the idea of our churches living in covenant community. And I know, 87% of you said, yes, this is the direction we want to walk. But I know that even in that 87%, there are some of you that still say, I voted for this provisionally. You're going to have to show me. Because I'm just not convinced. I'm not a fool, I understand that. It's a difficult position to be in. To say, well, this is what it is. Let me tell you what it is. I give you, by way of another illustration, I had the privilege this fall, this last fall, of uh, doing a men's retreat uh, down in uh, Big Bear, or actually uh, Arrowhead. It was a, a church out in the desert that brought their men away on retreat for a weekend. Big church, about 300 men. And they asked if I would come in and speak to them uh, to the issue of passing the faith on from one generation to the next. And they knew that my oldest son, Jacob, was uh, in the ministry, a junior high pastor, 
uh, serving down in Southern California, and they said, we would like you both to come and present. Well, that was kind of interesting. Uh, both of us going to go present, and what does this look like? We'd had a, this, this obvious father-son relationship, faith from one generation to the next. And um, Jake and I began to pray about what we would say and how we would communicate, and the communication was sparse to begin with, but as it got further down the road, I said to Jake, I kind of challenged and said, okay, how about if we do this? How about if I think about what I try to do intentionally to teach you about the faith, and then you approach it from the angle of what you heard? Now, we'll prepare separately. We won't prepare together. We'll make this as fresh as we can. And so when I got to the retreat, uh, Jake and I had four or five sessions, and we tag-teamed each session. And we had picked our topics. We had decided what were the topics of uh, the, the key points to passing on the faith. We had decided that. And then uh, I would present uh, what I tried to do as a father to teach and what he heard. So um, the first subject that we were talking about was fear and fear of the Lord. And so uh, I gave this rather eloquent sermon from scripture and talked about what it meant and, and how God said this is the beginning of all knowledge and uh, how I would try and transfer that to my children and, and then Jake stood up and, and opened with this illustration. Now mind you, this is 300 men and he said, um, he said you know, uh, growing up I was involved in athletics and I wrestled and I played football and he said, there is an experience that's forever burned in my mind because it was the same thing that occurred at every wrestling match, at every football game that I ever played. He said, but I just want to set the picture for you. It's Friday night, and you're a high school football player. Now, for those of you that have never done that, this will be difficult, but with, with 300 men, they were all kind of dialed in. And Jake said, it's an intense moment in time. It's Friday night. It's under the lights. The team goes in and gets dressed, comes out on the field early to warm up. We warm up and get ready to go and break a sweat. They usher us back into the locker room. The coach gives the final preparations and a pep talk. We run out onto the field, back onto the field. Our whole team gathers in the end zone. We all bounce up and down in anticipation. There may be a few words from the captains and we're pretty psyched up. The stands are full, the lights are on, the cheerleaders are holding the big crasher. We run through the crasher bust through that run to the sideline, and we are pretty much beside ourselves. He said, but uh, the ritual for me was always the same. He said, now, my dad didn't stand out on the sidelines during the whole game, but right at the beginning of the game, he'd be on the sidelines. And I would run over to him, and he would grab me by the face mask, and he'd pull my face in really close to his, and he'd say, now remember, you play for an audience of one. I heard a few oohs and ahs. Well, when you're with all men, they're all like, oh, oh. <laughs> now they're all just kind of. And Jake says, um, what I need to come clean with is that, uh, honestly, I didn't have a clue what my dad was talking about. <laughs>
I've told that story a few times. It's painful, okay? <laughs> Those were intense, intentional moments. And yet, uh, Jake went on to say that really, when talking about passing on the faith from one generation to the next, more is caught than taught. And that was his lesson to the men. He said, I didn't understand it at the time as a 17-year-old. He said, but as I've grown, as I've progressed, and even at that time, there were things that I did understand. And one thing that I understood was, when I looked into my father's eyes, I could see that there was something bigger than football. He goes, but to play for an audience of one, that I was playing for everybody else. I was playing for my friends, my coaches, my girlfriends, the cheerleaders, whoever else. That's who I was playing for, to kind of get my mind around the idea that I was playing for God. That was not a part of it. He said, but I could look into my dad's eyes and I could see that there was something bigger. And he said, and that language began to grow in me. Well, can I challenge you this morning? Covenant community is something that is going to be caught more than it's going to be taught. So that makes it difficult for this presenter to give to you the tangibleness. The truth is, we don't know what it's going to look like. But let me just get frank and open for a minute. Everybody wants to know what it's going to look like. And everybody wants to know if it's going to work. How do you know this is going to work? Prove it to us. Show us what it's going to look like. And the truth is, I can't. I can't show you. And I don't know if it's going to work. Now, doesn't that sound hopeful? (laughs) Hope has an identity. His name is Jesus. We want to put our hope in him this day. And what I want to say to you very honestly is that we're all afraid. And conservative Baptists have reason for fear and have had reason for fear that has been good for a long time. Our history, our heritage saw us confront some things that we were very fearful of. The idea that there would be a hierarchy that somehow we would form an association or a denomination that would be ordered from the top down, that it would destroy the autonomy of the church, that God's independent institution would somehow come under men specifically. And you know what? It's so easy to happen. You can set it up structurally, be Episcopal in your polity, with bishops and the like. You can even maybe give some scriptural backing for it. However, in our day and age, it probably isn't so much structural as it is a cult of personality. Get a charismatic leader, flashy, strong, able to draw people. I mean, we all, as ministers, want to have some of that charisma but it's pretty easy to do that. It's pretty easy to start to build a structure around the bureaucracy. You have fears. 
Mark Hafner is trying to take over the world. And he's starting with CB. Now, if I were starting, that's not where I'd start, but. <laughs> so hierarchy, there's a fear. Is, that, is it a centralizing of power? Is it a centralizing of decision-making? Is that what we're up against? What, what does this covenant community look like? Or perhaps it's the accountability question. It's in our covenant statement that we are to be accountable to each other. Let's strike a little fear in you. Who am I to be accountable to and what for? Who is going to be telling me what I can and can't do? It does strike a little fear in us. You want to know why? Because accountability with no relationship is something to be afraid of. It is something to be afraid of because people don't know you. And you cannot judge the motives of men. That's very difficult. So we enter into this situation with great fears, justifiable fears. Marcus told you the identity document is not perfect. No, it was written by fallible men. But I want to share with you just a little bit from my observation before we would crack God's word open, into all of this process. That, that covenant, that identity document, was prepared by lots of men. It is not Mark's words. There were many men that spoke into it. And I have heard with my own ears, listening to hundreds who have spoken in, to say that they had never been a part of that kind of process in the history of their engagement with CB. I have heard men say that, that most of the time it's handed down to be voted on, ratified, decided upon, without the input. And yet I have watched Mark, through great personal sacrifice and the sacrifice of his staff, make the thoughts and ideas and intentions available. You may be sitting there saying, well, not to me. Didn't happen to me. I understand. I understand that CB has been pretty free-flowing in terms of involvement. People flow in and out and consider themselves a part of the family, whether they've been in participation or relationship for years or not. It's an interesting family that we have, very free-flowing. But I have watched a process that has sought to include as many people into it as possible. And I have watched as um, there has been a definite shift in paradigm. It's pretty easy to start a bureaucracy. All you need is one person in an office with a phone and a file cabinet. You know what I mean? It's, it, that's all it takes. And yet, at my tenure at, at CB Northwest, at the office, I have watched as that crew has leaned out, through God's leading, leaned out the staff. It's pretty lean, it's pretty mean, and Mark drives a hard bargain. But you know, it is motivating. And Mark has said from day one, we are here to serve the church. And you've heard the adage probably until you're sick of it. But Mark's cry has been, it's the first one to the bottom of the pile. 
That's what we will do. We will serve. Who is diving? That's the question. It does not smack of hierarchy, and it does not smack of uh, bureaucracy, and it does not smack of uh, centralizing of power and authority, but just the opposite. This morning, I would like to, if, if you have with your packets, I'd love for you to look at the covenant and begin there as we look at this idea of whether or not we can actually live here. What in the world would it look like? I thought that last night that Bill gave us a wonderful picture of what it meant for leaders to start to engage and to live in covenant community. And I want to capitalize on some of those themes and go a little bit further as we look at the church. Let me read to you the covenant statement under the covenant of churches of CB Northwest. CB Northwest is part of the body of Christ. You'll notice that we are not the sum total of the body of Christ, but a part of it, acknowledges our God-ordained covenantal relationships. And I know that that word is being bandied about in many ways. We are hoping to restore that word and redeem it. We're not speaking of covenantal theology. We're speaking of a covenant. Some people say, hey, it's a word that's not used much anymore. Why would you use something like that? Because it speaks very accurately to what we are attempting. A promised relationship ordained by God. So this God-ordained covenantal relationships as a fellowship of conservative Baptist churches holding in common our doctrine, polity, and philosophy of ministry, we agree to a covenant relationship expressed in dependence upon, responsibility for, and accountability to each other by God's grace. CB Northwest also seeks covenant community with other regional CB communities throughout North America and around the world. If I could just zero in on key terms and the ones that I know cause us to kind of grind to a halt, let me first look at that whole idea of dependence upon just for a moment. What in the world does that mean? Some have even said, we used to use the word interdependence. Well, I don't think the intent has changed, and I don't know that the word interdependence would necessarily fit grammatically in that sentence structure, but the thought behind dependence is really pretty crucial. For the believer, we depend on a holy God saving a sinful people. Our dependence is on Jesus Christ and the salvation found in him, an imputed righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but one that has been established by Jesus Christ himself. And Christ did that, passively and actively. Passively in going to the cross, being put to death, atoning for the sin of men. But he did it actively by absolutely obeying God perfectly. And we depend on Christ's obedience and his sufficient sacrifice for us to be saved and to be connected to each other. Is that all that we depend on? 
No, we depend on people of like mind, people with the same values. We depend on each other as churches for fellowship and encouragement. What we are declaring to the world in stating this covenant is that we depend on relationship, that it is not good for us to go it alone. We understand isolation and aloneness creates problems, but there is a strength in numbers, in people that hold to common truth and a common vision. Dependence brings a level of security, and that's really what we're talking about this morning, to be secure Isn't that a need for all of humanity? Any person that you talk to, security. To know that they're not in it alone. What is sin? Sin is aloneness. It's being separated from God. And even as we would bring the gospel to people, we would say to them, you need not be alone any longer. You need not be separated. And so we exalt in the idea that we know those truths and we depend upon each other for fellowship and encouragement. Now, how would you get your bodies to connect that way? Well, I'll just be real honest with you. You're not. You're not until they would see the value in you as leaders being connected. Don't even think about trying to bring your churches together unless you as pastors and elders and leaders of the church would consider that a priority. And you know what? You can't do that across church lines until it would be evident within your own church. That you as leaders would see that you are in need of being dependent upon others who believe the way you believe and share what you share. So it really comes back to the individual, but we see it extended out. Dependence on each other is security. It provides a measure of security. Responsibility for... Well, that could take on all kinds of pictures and could bring about all kinds of fears. What is it that we're to be responsible for? Can I put it into the positive? Our responsibility brings a sense of significance. That's really what it brings. A sense that our church isn't the end of the world, And it isn't the sum total of our Christian experience. That there is a cause that is beyond our little church. And that we can be connected with other churches of like mind, share the same values, and that we can begin to be responsible for each other in fulfilling what God would have us to do in the Great Commission. To make disciples, to advance the kingdom, to unveil the kingdom. It is a positive thing and gives us a sense of significance. And you know what? We all need something bigger in our lives. We need to see God bigger. We can get so bogged down and and so closed because of the weight of ministry within our own churches. And it is good for us to see that we are responsible for others beyond our church walls, ones that we would send to a mission field, churches that would need to be planted, leaders that need to be raised up and sent out. 
that gives us a sense of significance beyond our own walls. Responsibility. Responsibility to exhort each other, to push each other, to challenge each other with the advancement of the kingdom. And then we come to accountability. That's the big stickler. Accountability. I, I'm frustrated with the word. I'll just be honest with you. I have difficulty finding the word specifically within Scripture. I have difficulty finding a, co- a command to be accountable to each other. I can see where we're to be dependent. And I can see that there is responsibility, but accountability. Does that mean that I have the right to come in and check up on your doctrine? Let's just see if your doctrine's okay. Or if you're organized correctly. If your polity's in order. Or maybe your philosophy of ministry needs some going over. Let's just check it out. Let me hold you accountable. The truth is that nowhere in Scripture can we see that as an exhortation or an admonition but rather we see volitionally the charge for us to confess our sins one to another. It is not so much me asking the questions as being forthright in allowing others to see into my world. What would be another word for accountability? It would really be a sense of belonging that you are connected to a group of people who care, to churches who really and truly care about you. I've stolen this example, but it is powerful in my life. Someone, actually it was Bill Clem, challenged me a long time ago, probably doesn't remember this, but challenged me with the thought of accountability, and he said, you know, um, I'm in an accountability group with some men and I've done the thing where we give each other the questions and the freedom to ask those questions and you guys know what I'm talking about in that regard. He said, but uh, the persons that I am most accountable to are the ones that I care for most. The ones whom I really care what they think about me. And I can remember in youth ministry, reaching a position where I was actually asked to go out and train in other youth ministries and be on the road and kind of be the guest speaker, you know, kind of a situation. And then, of course, all of the information that came to me by way of, Luke, guard yourself, and there's all kinds of temptations, and you're out on the road alone, and think about your wife. Think about those things, and don't be tempted. And the the truth is that um, I didn't think about my wife as it related to my moral purity, my sexual purity, and the temptations that would come out on the road, um, Donna was not the first person I thought of. I confess that to you. Maybe that's bad. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's the grace of God. What God did impress upon me was Natalie, my daughter, when she was young. And what would I say to my daughter and to my sons if I were to fall what would I say? Because I cared deeply about them. It's not to say that I didn't care about Donna, but somehow in the mix of marriage, you know how that works, it, it, some of that gets dulled. 
And it stirred me back to, yes, I'm committed to one woman and to these children. And it is absolutely necessary for me to remain pure for their sake. Accountability begins with the individual not holding someone accountable, but understanding that they need to check, confess, be open, and belong to a group of people that care. That's really what it means. So, we have a sense of security, dependence. We have a sense of significance, responsibility for something larger than our own ministries. And a sense of belonging, that God is working through a people who care for us deeply. Now you can see that those could be fleshed out to a huge degree. But it's hypothetical. I'm giving you it in hypothesis. I know you're saying, is this going to work, Luke? And I'm saying, I don't know. But here's what I'm convinced. It's the right thing. (laughs) It's the right thing. Security, significance, belonging, dependence, responsibility, accountability. Those are good things. They're right things. And we are in need of experiencing them. Can I give it to you by way of another illustration? Uh, If you would bear with me, Scott, I'll be ready to go here. I'm giving Scott the heads up. I want to use a clip from the movie The Lord of the Rings, the first one, Fellowship of the Ring. For those of you that are not familiar with the story, uh, it's totally fictional. Uh, It is a a story of a land that we know nothing of, but essentially that... um, Rulers uh, created rings that gave power to uh, those rulers to rule over all parts of earth. And the parts of earth were divided up into different lands. And then, of course, uh, those rings of great power were corrupted. And specifically, men corrupted the the power of the ring. And it just so happens that um, the ring falls into the hands of something that was less than a man, a halfling, a hobbit. And that... A hobbit utilizes the ring for his own devices for many years, but in the end decides that that really something needs to be done with the ring. It needs to be uh, taken care of because it's going to corrupt in power. And so um, the whole of the movie is based upon uh, destroying the ring. It's a whole trilogy. Those of you that are familiar know full well. Um, There is a little hobbit who was uh, commissioned to get the ring to a, a place and a council of leaders of all these different parts of earth, and they were going to decide what's going to happen with the ring. Unfortunately, the forces of evil and darkness are mounting against the good. It is a classic story of good and evil. And so they're trying to debate what to do with the ring, whether to use it against evil or whether to destroy it. But I want you to listen to the interaction and see if you can't put yourself in the middle of a group of people covenanting to one cause. Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you've been summoned here to answer the threat of Mordor. Middle-earth stands upon the brink of destruction. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. Bring forth the ring, Frodo.
give to the foes of Mordor. Why not use this ring? Long has my father, the steward of Gondor, kept the forces of Mordor at bay. By the blood of our people are your lands kept safe. Give Gondor the weapon of the enemy. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The One Ring answers to Sauron alone. It has no other master. And what would a ranger know of this matter? This is no mere ranger. He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. Aragorn. This is Isildur's heir. And heir to the throne of Gondor. Havodad, Eulus. Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. Aragorn is right. We cannot use it. You have only one choice. The ring must be destroyed. And what are we waiting for? cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. And I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. No one trusts an elf. I will take you to the 
I will take the ring to Mordor. possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Wait, we're coming too! We'll have to send us home tied up in a sack to stop us. Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission, quest, thing. Well, that rules you out, Pip. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? Just how prophetic is that? I perhaps identify the most with Pippin and trying to understand. And some of you would say, Luke, you've yet to open the word, and you've given us some word pictures, and now you've given us a movie. I'm not trying to play to your emotions. I'm certainly not trying to circumvent and say that the wisdom of men is greater than that of God, but simply to recognize that there are fears for the journey that we begin. We have called ourselves a fellowship. We have called ourselves a family. We now call ourselves a covenant community. What will it take? If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. I would like to give you a picture of what it will take. Isaiah 61, beginning at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, writes the prophet, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The truth is that we must see what are the seeds of those oaks of righteousness? Where did those oaks of righteousness come from? Did they appear out of thin air? The courageous and devoted followers of God? Those who walk in purity and strength? Is that where they came from? those that would understand. Indeed, the exact opposite is true. Look with me again. Verse one, halfway through. To bring good news to the afflicted. Are you afflicted? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. If you do not need to be fixed, then there isn't good news for you. You don't need any. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. You see, if God would use us as conservative Baptists, we must understand where we come from. We must understand what is the requisite for use in God's kingdom. We must understand what is required of us to be in covenant community. It is required that we would declare our afflictions, our brokenheartedness, what binds us and holds us captive, our very sin. We must declare that we are prisoners. Only then May that oil of gladness be ours. Only then would God pour out his spirit. For if you would stand in rebellion in need of none of those things, then the good news would not be good news for you. The parallel scripture here is to be found in Luke 4. Would you turn with me? It's rather interesting Jesus has come out of the desert, beginning his public ministry, he returns to Galilee. Returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. We see his divinity and his humanity at work. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus is compelled by the Spirit to return to Galilee? Verse 16 of chapter 4 reads, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. 
And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Listen and observe their response. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now here's the brute truth. What was prophesied in Isaiah 61 comes to fruition in Luke 4. There is no waiting. The kingdom of God is here and Jesus proclaims it. And said, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. So we're not talking hypothetically anymore. I have come and I am victorious and I will lead the captives and the prisoners and I will bind up the brokenhearted and I will minister to the afflicted and to those who are hurting and lost, I will be their savior. Jesus fulfills that prophecy They're looking at him saying, isn't this that guy that lived with Joseph? Verse 22, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips and they were saying, this is not Joseph's son. Isn't it just like us? To listen graciously to words, but to come with a severe amount of skepticism. Oh, covenant community. Oh, we're going to try and be a family. Why do we need to get organized? What's needed? Oh, well, that, that sounds good. That, that would be a good thing. Well, who's saying that? Is Mark saying that? Who is Mark? He's from Prairie City. Isn't he the cattle rancher? I'm not trying to equate Mark with Christ. I'm just trying to give you a picture of how we approach things. How do we see things? Jesus goes on to say, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Broken people, people who understood their brokenness, ministered to by God himself. But this is their final response, verse 28. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they rose up and cast him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. There's their response. Ours is to be a community of faith that begins with brokenness, that begins in humility, to walk in humility and an understanding 
that we don't have everything figured out? Do conservative Baptists hold to the secure truth and no one else has got it? No. Some would say, what's the need of associations and denominations? Don't they just cause division and strife? Maybe that day is dead and gone. The day of denominations and binding our hearts together. I don't think so, but many would argue. For today, it is a day of independence and strong independent churches, big mega churches with all of the resources needed, standing alone and in need of no one. That is our day. But you know what? It's our day in, Western, in the Western world. It's not the day in the two-thirds of the other world. It is what Christianity looks like with Americana strapped onto it. Individualism and isolation. All of the factors that have gone into that are too many to name at this moment. But the day of that kind of independence has got to end. We are in need of a fellowship that rallies to a cause that's bigger than any one of us as individuals. A place where we can be secure, find our significance, and have a sense of belonging. And it begins with our brokenness. Are we better than other associations and other denominations? I have no desire to know that. None whatsoever. What I love about conservative Baptists, what I love about this association is their commitment to the truth. And I know Mark has come under fire. The office has come under fire by saying we don't stand for truth. That perhaps something is sliding in that isn't truthful. Listen, it is our association that has spoken into that document. And the wisdom of men and of Orthodox Christianity and it has come under scrutiny, and it'll come under further scrutiny this year. But what I love about conservative Baptists is that they don't want to back up from the truth. And I, for one, find that fellowship very stimulating. Not to be arrogant. Are we the only keepers of that truth? No. I, I don't have a desire at this point to look beyond this. This is enough, Lord. This group of people... Can we understand our brokenness and our affliction? And can we seek to minister to each other out of our brokenness and our weakness? God says that out of that brokenness and weakness, I'm going to plant you as oaks of righteousness. Studied an oak tree lately? See what that looks like? There's always a special place in my heart for oak trees. Having grown up in Northern California, I can see it in my mind's eye. Big and strong and in the summertime full of leaf. Great for climbing. Hard wood that burns hot in a fireplace. Can build lots of strong things. Provide shade and comfort for all kinds of God's creation. Oaks of righteousness that declare our God simply by their existence. Wow. That's what God wants to do with us. But first, 
You must declare your brokenness. We must declare that we don't know it all. But that we are committed to God's truth from his word. That will be our rallying point. Jesus declares that it is no longer prophecy, that that kingdom exists now, and he seeks to build those oaks of righteousness. It's going to happen. And the world looked at him and said, no, you're just uh, Joseph's son. No, it's not going to happen. And they actually sought to kill him. What you endeavor to do by voting yes is to walk in covenant community. And we don't exactly know where we're going. And there will be many who will say, that's ridiculous. The day of associations and denominations is over. And why would you put any energy or effort into that? And yet, we have a hope. His name is Jesus Christ. It's not a ring. It is the God of the universe. And our fellowship is to rally to him. And the weakest member will lead us. Can you see that? The one who is broken and honest before God. It won't necessarily be that uh, first level ministry that Bill talked about. It'll be a second level ministry. If you would indulge me just this much, look at your core values in the identity document. Bill looked at um, four of the last five, I would choose this morning to look at the first four and see if I can't put feet to this whole idea that Isaiah paints for us and what it takes to live in covenant community. Value number one states that we value covenant community as defined by our identity document in parentheses, doctrine, philosophy, and polity. What is it that we're committed to? This is what we're committed to. We're committed to this set of doctrine, this polity, and this philosophy. If you will, these are the sideboards of our fellowship. It can't possibly contain all that is our fellowship, Because community is made up of relationship, of give and take, and mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice, of meeting need and being needy. But these sideboards hem us in. They tell us that this is our boundary. This is the people that we know share our heart and our mind. That's what that value means. It is the strength of a common vision found in a truth agreed upon. Are there things to be worked out with that? Yes. This next year we'll fine-tune and we'll tweak and we'll try and make as accurate as possible. Understand that it's still fallible men that have struggled for thousands of years to get this right. But it will give us those sideboards, that place that we call home, secure, significant, a sense of belonging. 
Value number two, we value truth, calling our community to a comprehensive Christian worldview that impacts every aspect of life, emphasizing a Trinitarian God and gospel power in and through our culture. Let me start first with the Trinity. Dr. Bruce Ware addressed us last year. He wrote a book as a result of those addresses. So funny because uh, I, I get all the information of conferences and those things that are going on all over the nation. And John Piper held his pastor's conference this year. And who was his keynote speaker? Dr. Bruce Ware. What was he speaking on? The Trinity. I said, nah, nah, we had him first. <laughs> I had one of my sons that went out to it. But uh, the whole point being here that we are restoring the idea that our community can be modeled after the community of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that work together seamlessly in authority and submission. It is an amazing sight to behold. And Dr. Bruce Ware, in the opening of his book, acknowledges the meetings at the Northwest and that stimulation for him writing the book. And grateful to you as pastors who would receive seemingly an insignificant, in the world's eyes, doctrine known as the Trinity. Insignificant even in maybe in evangelical circles, but would spend four days talking about it. Blew him away, and he acknowledges it in his book. The basis for us to live in community is seen in our God and in the Godhead. And how about the gospel? The gospel in and through our culture is all the power we need. It is what we value, the way of the cross, and it is what we will be about as a fellowship, as a community. So back to the front end, truth. Truth, that's what we value, calling our community to a comprehensive worldview. We are done with compartmentalized Christianity. And I've watched it from lots of angles. And I've watched it specifically through youth ministry. And we're done with that. We're looking for the Jeff Walls who say, you know what, my Christianity is so important, my life has to be rearranged. I cannot go on this way. We're looking for our individual churches, groups of people who see the highest priority as God's will in every area of their life. There is no separation between the secular and the sacred. All is sacred. It is God's, and we will live and work for his glory in all situations. Our truth-based, comprehensive Christian worldview will touch everything. Amen. Amen. That is something worth holding others accountable to. That is a responsibility for us to encourage each other and to look at how our individual bodies are fulfilling that mandate and by encouragement strengthen each other. A three-in-one God and the gospel. That's all the ammo that we need. That's it. 
all the power needed, and that's what we'll hold on to. Thirdly, we value the local church as God's ordained instrument for advancing his kingdom. I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. As we think of the fears of a hierarchy and a top-down model, here is the, the bottom line truth. It rests with God's church, his local body, those congregations. We understand that. It is our heritage. It is the instrument that he would use to spread the gospel. He will build it. He will sustain it. It is for us to exalt in his bride. So we're not taking shots at the bride anymore. We have boomer churches and buster churches and Gen X and classic worship. And, I mean, we got all kinds of names for things. We're not taking a shot at the bride of Christ any longer. This covenant community will seek to exalt the God-ordained instrument for bringing the gospel to the world. And each of you in leadership will need to discern what God has for your community of faith to build up that body of believers to impact the culture in which you live. It is that instrument that the office is dedicated to in every way, shape, and form. Lastly, the fourth value. We value a missional church perspective, mobilizing our churches to penetrate a Christless culture and helping our churches to equip all as sent ones. Who are you? Well, hopefully you are biblical exegetes that handle the word of God accurately and powerfully and you thunder the word. But I pray that you are cultural exegetes as well. That you would understand the communities that you live in. We value churches that understand the communities that they live in. What do we want you to do? Well, some would say what's needed is for you to acquiesce to that culture. Become like that culture. Slide into that culture. You know, and give them a little gospel on the way in. We're not asking you to do that. We are asking you to be sensitive to the people around you and to their hurt and to their need. And we want you to confront that culture with a brand new language. A new language, a gospel language. You see, when the gospel comes in, it has its own language and its own culture. Can you understand that? We love people and we give them God's language and we show them what the truth is. You will need to be savvy cultural exegetes. You cannot be a clanging gong or cymbal. That won't work, we know. But you must be people who love, and we value that missional perspective. Numa, Coram Deo, looking at their communities. What do we need to do to reach? I challenge you. You can go to church at Numa, go listen to Jeff Olson preach. Now he stands up here and says, we're meeting in a movie theater. The man preaches the word of God. The language is different. 
It is the gospel language. And it is an upside-down kingdom. And that is what we preach. That is what we value. Those are the core values of this covenant community. So let me leave you with this thought. I struggled immensely with this message. There's nowhere in scripture to defend associations or denominations. There's nowhere that I can take you to scripture, passage, chapter and verse and say, here's what God says. You shall all be conservative Baptists. And so I struggled hard. We have to look at general principles and extrapolate. But I do know this. I do know that just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that it's bad. And if we are to be churches associated with each other, then we are to hold to a set of values that the world knows not of. They're kingdom values. And they are upside down. So let me illustrate it in two places in Scripture. Two places. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Anybody that's been around me for any period of time will know that I have labored through these verses and belabored them probably. But in chapter 11, we find the situation in which uh, Jesus is um, preaching and teaching. He's talked about the meaning of discipleship in the previous chapter, but... um, John the Baptist has been thrown into jail and he is um, suffering there in jail. And it's at this juncture that he sends his disciples to Christ and asks this question. Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 1, chapter 11. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now here's the truth. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If I were writing the Bible, I wouldn't put that verse in. That's not one to put in. It doesn't bode well for us. Can you remember the first time that John the Baptist testified to Jesus Christ? When was that? It was in the womb. Remember that? When Mary and Elizabeth met and John does some cartwheels, when he recognized the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And now he's asking the question, are are you the one or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist, his whole life dedicated, dedicated to proclaiming Christ. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? I have. Yeah, it's awful. It's an awful situation. How does Jesus feel about it? John, you low-down, dirty dog. How in the world could you think that? Now, let me tell you what Jesus thinks of that. Verse 7 that same chapter. And as they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
That's what Jesus thinks about John in John's severe moment of doubt. You get the picture? This is an upside-down kingdom, and John's getting a full taste of it right now. Guess what, John? This walking with me, God, has nothing to do with you. And your doubt. It has everything to do with me. Jesus does not fear John's doubt. And you know what? He doesn't fear your doubt either. Doubt will, to a diligent person, produce faith. Unbelief, that's a sin. Yeah, that's a sin. Doubt, there is no sin in doubt. Jesus makes that very clear. Now what does he say to John's disciples? Well, let's go back. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, as they had questioned, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Jesus essentially says, John, I understand that you're in prison, and that you are the forerunner to me, and that you believe in your heart that I'm coming to set up a kingdom, physical, political, right now to overthrow the Romans, and you're waiting for the SWAT team to get to the prison and get you out of there. John, the SWAT team's not coming. Take a deep breath and rejoice. The kingdom of God is here. And John, it is upside down. You're not going to believe this. This is what it looks like. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The people are broken and marginalized, are given new life and freedom. And John, that is the gospel, and that is the kingdom, and those are the values that we'll adhere to. John is getting recalibrated. We don't know what happens in his mind because he loses his head later, literally. He's beheaded. A whole nother story. What does it say to us today? To enter into covenant community is to stand on a different set of values, and the values have been placed before you. And it's an understanding like Pippin in the Lord of the Rings that, hey, where are we going? We don't really know. Except this is what we value, and we are promising to be related to each other, holding on to these values and this doctrine. That's what we promise to. It is not to an office in churches, as Mark has said. We're not the accountability force. It is church to church. So lastly, maybe we would find ourselves like the disciples, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. If you'd turn with me there. I'm grateful to Doug Hazen, who spent some time, we spent some time discussing this passage and give credit to him and for some of this thinking, but you know the passage well, the Great Commission. This is at the very end, and Jesus is going to ascend, and he's giving final instructions and final words, and you've all preached this a thousand times, and so have I. But let's see if we can look with new eyes again. 
verse 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now I ask you, what were they doubting? Don't tell me they were doubting Jesus' resurrection because they had walked through that. They had been with Thomas in that whole encounter. They had seen Jesus walk through the walls. They had eaten breakfast and dinner with him. They couldn't possibly doubt his presence. He's standing right before them. So what are they doubting? Jesus, we don't know if we can do this. Live and love like you told us to. Go reach a world that's hurting and broken. We doubt that we can make that happen. So Jesus assuages their doubt. And I give this to you this morning for those who would doubt. Covenant community and whether it will work. Verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Can I translate that for you? There's nowhere that you can go that I don't rule. I control everything, including the evil one. There's nowhere that you can go that I do not have authority. Take ease, rest your souls. All of it is under my control. I will build it, I will sustain it. I understand your doubt. Don't look to your effort. Turn and look at me. Face me. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. By word and by deed, teach them. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to me, and I'm going with you. You will not go alone. Okay, here's what we need to do. We need to be a group of people who would speak that back and forth to each other. That would live in relational community that would say, yes, you belong to Jesus. Let me, let me assuage your doubt. He is in control. He has all authority. And look, our fellowship has wrestled with this and we would love to help you. And we want to be connected. We want to be secure in what it is that we believe, dependent upon this gospel and this all-authoritative Christ. And we will live responsibly with a sense of significance, something greater than our individual works. And we will belong to an accountable community. That's what it means to live in covenant community. You say, Luke, you still haven't given us examples. I haven't seen them yet. You will live them out. And you know what? Next year, you'll come back and you'll tell us, this is what it looks like, Luke. This is what it looks like to live in those sideboards. 
because we're going to give it our try. And yes, we are doubtful, but God and Jesus is bigger than that and bigger than our doubt. And yes, things need to be refined, and you'll work hard to do that as well. And you'll work hard posting on the forum and showing up at the meetings and working hard and gathering together in your association and encouraging. And maybe, just maybe, if God would be pleased, the conservative Baptist movement in the Northwest would look different. Just maybe. I dream of that. May it be so. Let's pray. God, I do dream. You know what I think of? I think of um, Winter Youth Celebration. About 1,200 high school students that show up annually in Portland come from all over. And God, you meet them and they grow. And how would I love to challenge them one year? Maybe the seniors only or juniors. Hey, there is a church plant in Bellingham, Washington. There's a church plant in Eugene and Corvallis and Portland. There's one in Walla Walla. We're organizing it around college students. Can you see that the truth is comprehensive and this worldview permeates all of your life, high school students, and would you go to one of these church plants? As you go to school, would you be a part of that? God, I dream and I see um, experts, our pastors, who have walked those fiery roads and have been broken, humiliated, suffered, and yet you have planted them like oaks of righteousness. And now they would have much to offer those who are broken and beginning the road. God, I see men, leaders, elders, pastors, deacons, always on the hunt, looking for that next man of God, woman of God, to be developed, to be challenged, to be empowered and released for effective ministry. A dream of that. A group of people that would be so committed to the next generation that they could see nothing else. The spread of your gospel to all generations. God, I look and I dream and I see an association. Yeah. A true family connected. Pastors who come to a prayer summit four days before the face of God. Meager existence, sleeping on bunk beds and cots and on the floor, but committed to seek you and to pray. Not a fraction, but all of them coming to pray. Be humbled before you. And God, I dream and I see us gathered next year, First Baptist Eugene, with grand stories of our God and how he has met us in covenant community. 
a place where we exalt our king and the cause that he has given to us and we rejoice. Father, I lay this dream before you. If you would find it ill-motivated, wrong-headed, then I pray you would destroy it. But if not, I pray you would release it to these people. Thank you for being our king, our savior, our redeemer. May we live up to our names as your children and as conservative Baptists. And I pray all of this for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen.